Welcome to the broadcast of the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship of Boise, Idaho. Our desire is that today's message will multiply God's grace to you. To contact us, please call us at 208-331-4096. We'll repeat that number again at the end of our broadcast today. But now, here's our speaker, Joel Van Hoogen. Today we learn from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 11, what is the nature of unbelief. In advance, here are the main points. Number one, unbelief doesn't occur when God is silent. It occurs when God is speaking. Number two, as such, it is not an intellectual matter. Unbelief doesn't take place at the point of honest doubts. It takes place at the point of a willful heart that resists the speaking God. Number three, it is not the moment of indecision or doubt that causes unbelief. Unbelief is formed by a pattern of turning from God's voice. Number four, unbelief therefore is in itself sin. Number five, unbelief has its reasons, its rationale. But again, in the end, it is called the deceitfulness of sin. Let us just briefly look at this thing called unbelief and then let's address how to address it and answer it. And I have only a number of quick points for you. But unbelief, first, let's notice something in our passage and just have that passage before you. Look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. You've got your Bibles open there. And, and notice at the very beginning that unbelief doesn't occur when God is silent. It occurs when God is speaking. Today, if you will hear His voice, God is convicting, God is revealing, God is sounding forth Himself, even for the individual who lives on the farthest outpost of this world in the darkest place. God has surrounded that individual with testimony after testimony of His own existence and His own power and His own presence and His own being, and man turns away from God. It's in the presence of God's revelation that unbelief gives rises. It is not because God hasn't given you enough. It's not because God has not made a convincing argument. It's not because God is silent. The second thing I want you to see here is this. Unbelief as such is not an intellectual matter. It is not an intellectual matter. Our passage says, do not harden your hearts. Unbelief doesn't take place at the point of honest doubts. All of us have that. It takes place at the point of a willful heart resisting the Holy Spirit. It isn't the mind that hardens against God first. It's the heart that will not bend to the will of God and will throw up its intellectual smoke screens. But whatever you may be telling yourself, persistent unbelief is always a matter of the will. It's a matter of a hard heart, not a hard head. Here's the third thing. It's not a moment of indecision or doubt. All of us have moments of indecision or doubt. Unbelief is formed by a pattern of turning away from God's voice. A pattern that can only be described and is described in this place as a rebellion against God. God speaks, God reveals Himself, God communicates Himself, God impresses His truth upon the heart, His will for us, God is speaking, God is impressing our hearts, 
but we do not want to turn into him and to his voice. And it's rebellion. They always go astray in their hearts. We read here. That's unbelief. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, again describes the nature of unbelief. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. What are they doing? They are actively suppressing God's revelation and God's truth. It's rebellion. It's unbelief. It's a consistent, ongoing pattern. It's not that moment of doubt. It's not that fleeting moment of indecision. It's the pattern of rebelling and pushing away from the will and voice of God. Don't say it's anything other than that. When you hesitate before what you know God is telling you. Fourth thing here is unbelief is as a result. Unbelief can only be identified in this way most clearly. It's sin. It's sin. Here it's called an evil heart of unbelief. We go and we bring the gospel to unbelievers. And we want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But even in their unbelief... We cannot think that this individual we're speaking to is just in some kind of unfortunate situation because they're uninformed. Their very unbelief is an expression of a pattern that is established in their life that is sin. Their very unbelief is something that has to be conquered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's the fifth thing. Unbelief has its reasons and its rationale. Get this, unbelief has its reasons and its rationale. It has its stories that it repeats to itself and that it will even, in unbelief, reconstitute old, untrue sentiments to justify itself, like the man I just told you about who justified his unbelief in the sentimental pursuit for some old, you know, folk songs and old Christian ditties that were sung in Nashville somewhere, you know, or where where was the Grand Old Opry, you know? few hymns sung by Elvis in the Grand Old Opry was enough for him. And that was what he was seeking. That's what he was missing. And he'll play up all of that music and all that song. And it will somehow so sentimentally bind him that he'll allow it to be a whitewash over all of the sin that went from his life from then on. That's all I needed. Just a nice song. That's what I was looking for. Here's what it's called. In the end, it's called the deceitfulness of sin. Unbelief is evidence of the deceitfulness of sin. It lies to you. It tells you that what you found or some compromise that you made is nothing sufficient. That little good deed you did, that really should cover it all. That good feeling you had in that moment or that sentiment for the good old days, that tells you that you really were a good person and everything's good. And Here is Israel. They have been under and they've been rescued from the wicked taskmasters of Egypt. Their children, while they were in slavery, had been systematically slaughtered by the Egyptians. And they had been subjugated as slaves. And yet, in their stubborn, willful unbelief, 
they begin to recast the story of Egypt in the most positive light in order not to tread forward into obedience. Go to Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. The people again are testing God. If you really love this God, you'd do this for us and you'd do that for us. It's all unbelief and it's all very manipulative. By the way, I realize that little children really don't operate in good faith with parents because for a good part of their time in their life, their idea that you love them is based upon what's the next thing you're going to give them and do for them. It's one of the things they have to grow out of. We're patient with them for a little while, but if they carry that on into adulthood, what we put up with would incense us, and it will incense God here as well. God will finally say, you're no longer children, and he'll become incensed and enraged at them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Of course it cost nothing. You were slaves. You had nothing. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. God has set them free. God has liberated them from their captors. They don't want to follow God. They don't want to obey God. They have a kind of nostalgia that looks back upon their bondage and their slavery and finds a couple fish that they caught in a net, a leek and a garlic, and that's good enough to make it all now seem great back in Egypt. Can I warn you to be careful of a kind of nostalgia that forms in your life? That puts a rosy hue on your past bondage and sin? It is the deceitfulness of the heart. It's the deceitfulness of unbelief that will play up the positives which justify our resistance to the will of God and our obedience to Him. Here's the sixth thing about this unbelief. Unbelief shuts us out from the rest to be found in Christ. God says they could not enter because of unbelief. First, they couldn't enter because God closes the door of gracious rest before the persistent unbelief and rebellion of the people. In verse 10 it says, Therefore, he was angry with this generation. And the word actually there is he was enraged or incensed with that generation. When we persistently turn away from God's invitations and commands, which, by the way, are the exact same things, God's commands are invitations into His fullness. And when we turn away from Him in this way, we stir up God's anger. Now God had over and over again met the needs of the people of Israel. And over and over again He had forgiven them and overlooked their grumbling and their stubbornness. And over over again He had relented from sending upon them a final judgment. But at some point His gracious patience is set aside and all that remains is His wrath and indignation. Jeremiah 15.6 tells of another occasion like this. It's a repeat of what happens in the wilderness. Here through the prophet, God says this. In Jeremiah 15.6, You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backward. So I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I am weary of relenting. I'm done giving you a break. Grace now moves into wrath. The second thing you see here is it's not simply because God closes the door, but the other reason why they can't enter this rest is because unbelief is, in essence, 
on our part, a turning away from God. You can't enter into rest when you turn from Him. The lack of faith, the lack of trust, the lack of obedience is not simply over a principle or a thing or an act. It's not simply the shirking of a duty. It's turning away from God. And God's will and God's call and God's invitation. Every command God gives is not a command just to do a thing. It's a command of God to enter into Him and His fullness and His provision and His life and His victory. And when you say no, you're saying no to Him, not just to the thing, not just to the action, not to that thing that you fear or that thing that you're battling with. You're saying no to Him. Unbelief, it says, in departing from the living God. And that's what disobedience is called. It's called unbelief in departing from the living God. And the word there in the Greek for departing is the word that we get apostasy from. It almost sounds the exact same way. Apostasy. It's actually kind of interesting. For individuals, and there's a lot of people like this, that somehow think that all religions are equal and they all lead to truth. Even if they were to reject some religions, but they would surely admit, well, Judaism and Christianity, they're on the same platform. They all lead to the same place. At some point, Judaism was projecting itself into Christ, but if you pass on by, and when it passed him by, it no longer qualified. It's not on the same platform as Christianity. Here, the author of Hebrews is telling Jews that if they turn back into Judaism from Christ, they are actually apostatizing against God. You've been listening to The Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this broadcast, call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, may God bless you.